you should do it's interesting actually why cannabis was made illegal in the first place it's all to do with the Hearst Hearst Corporation wasn't it to satisfy um, tobacco companies no it was the newspaper companies the Hearst Corporation was the biggest paper producer in the world for years and years they just made paper out of timber like wood pulp and then in the early 20s an enterprising fellow he invented a machine called a thrasher it was a machine that could just like fucking destroy hemp really easily and make it into this like stuff you could make paper out of Mm. and it sort of revolutionized a lot of production processes that you could use hemp for so suddenly all these acres and acres of forests become worthless because hemp's a plant rather than a tree yeah yeah and it grows easy so all these third world people would have been able to suddenly sell paper compete with the huge american paper maker Hearst. and hemp you can use it for other purposes as well and all sorts of materials clothes Mm. really because of course in those days Paper was massive because everybody read the newspapers. You know, it was like <laughs> paper was a massive thing. And and the pressure from the Hearst Corporation got, got marijuana banned. You know, there's all these like reefer madness films. Guys would have a spliff and jump off a building. It was like those sort of films. Brilliant. Have you got, the music? Ready? Have you got the music? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the second episode of the Ill-Informed Insight Podcast. I'm happy to announce I didn't get caught up in what appears to have been a non-existent shooting yesterday in Oxford Circus. And today I'm joined by Tim. Hi Tom. How are you Tim? I'm okay, I've got a bit of a sore throat. Did you get caught up in Oxford Circus? No thankfully, but I'm, I'm down there at least twice a week. Waving your gun around? No, I would, have, I would have hated to have been caught up in it. But apparently what it was, two guys had a punch up and somehow that turned into an armed terrorist yeah, shooting shoot people yeah. in Selfridges. It was insane. It right? was insane. I think people are just pussies now. They get scared of the smallest thing, like terrorists. And on this episode, we'll be giving our thoughts on UK Chancellor Philip Hammond's latest budget. Before that, we'll perhaps be shedding a tear over German Chancellor Angela Merkel. But to kick us off, it's the latest online viral sensation. I thought you were going to say something about Merkel, get a little dig in there. Oh, no. Net neutrality rules classify high-speed internet as a public utility. The goal is to ensure consumers have open and equal access to all content on the internet. Here's how it works. When you download content from the internet, it arrives in packets of data. Think of the packets as literal packages. Let's say you want to watch a Netflix movie, which is 10 packages big. First you order, but before Netflix ships, those packages have to go through a sorting facility. In this analogy, that's an internet service provider. Now what net neutrality means is that all packages must be delivered at the same rate. And currently, there are FCC rules in place to make sure that happens. Yeah, net neutrality. What does net neutrality mean to you, Tim? Well, obviously, net neutrality doesn't affect me. Like they said, that was this is all due to laws from the FCC. I, the I'm on Federal Communications yeah, I, Commission. I'm, I'm on a level beyond the internet. I I use my own ISP routine, Black Knight satellite, dark web, Russian onions, troll farm, onion skin server. They can't touch me. But what is net neutrality? In a nutshell, net neutrality is the notion that all data packets sent to and from PC servers, mobile devices, what have you, all of it has to be treated equally in regards to not being blocked or restricted in any way. 
assuming the data like isn't something explicitly illegal. So it just means like your internet service provider, they can't throttle and slow down your connection to a certain website. Yes. They can't like prioritize data transfers like from this website versus that website everything has all the data has to be treated equally and that clip you played it was actually accompanied by quite an interesting video where they used the image of a a small truck being filled up with boxes to show what an internet service provider does and i thought that that was actually quite a good analogy does the ups guy have responsibility for what's in the box and yeah but you know he, he has responsibility to deliver that data in the end of the day so, I mean, on, on one side, it means for the websites themselves, YouTube can't go to an internet service provider and be like, hey, we'll pay you extra money if you ensure our connection to your users is faster than, say, one of our competitors, like a Daily Motion or what other ones are there, like uh, Vimeo, VidMe, yes. whatever. Yeah. YouTube can't dominate and bully the market. It ensures fair competition amongst websites and internet service providers. It creates a nice level playing field from the consumer. But the one thing that concerns me at the moment like, is you might have a granny who says, like, well, I only use the internet for Kindle, so I use like a, a fraction, a sliver of, of the data that my neighbour does who watches like HD 3D porn 24 hours a day. <laughs> yeah. he, should, he should pay more because he's, he's filling up more well, of the truck. This is kind of... Um, Choice. Like, there's a typical confusion here between the size of data and the speed, the speed with which that, that data goes from one node to another right so i mean in terms of um data it's already tiered so that old woman if she wants if she only needs one gigabyte a month to read an ebook and send a couple of emails she can buy a cheap package with that data cap yeah you could call her a giga but if you're going to be streaming videos obviously you're going to go for the unlimited package but that's not terry terabyte but that's not what net neutrality affects oh what net neutrality is about is the speed okay of the data okay so On the surface, the way you describe it, this whole net neutrality, it seems like an entirely reasonable thing as a reaction to the use of the current technology we have. Because when you talk about speed, you're you're just really talking about the quality of the picture, how how fast the movie downloads. It doesn't buffer as you're trying to stream it and things like that. So at the moment, it seems like a very, like it's just a sensible way of dealing with our current technological constraints. Ten years from now, you know, when we've got stuff like quantum computers, speed and, and data capacity will be unimaginable. And and this, this shouldn't actually, it won't actually be an issue. So the concern for me is if they could use this legislation as a back doorway, basically slip in a, a method of controlling the, the internet. There's competing forces involved there, though. That's the good news for the end consumer is that like no one's going to have total control. Yeah, you said a C word, competing. I thought you were going to say conspiracy. No, no, you don't see enough on that. You don't see a conspiracy here. No, no, because the idea of net neutrality has existed almost as long as the internet has, but it was only codified into law, at least in America and the the EU. Yeah, in the last couple of years, so America did it in 2015 under Obama. The EU did it the following year. But the thing is, net neutrality existed as a concept long before then. The internet service providers, if they really wanted to have it, that you could pay a little bit extra and get a faster speed, if they wanted to do that, they would have done it already. And they haven't. It kind of makes sense to say to a Netflix, you can pay us more and we'll ensure faster connections to the end users than Vimeo, YouTube, yeah, yeah, whatever. Like, yeah. I don't think at any point they actually tried to do that. Yeah, I do see a backdoor 
listeners, I'm always looking for a backdoor. But there's a way now, what this could lead to is, is something that some people have always wanted. If you end up having to sign up to a particular package, that's going down the route of having your sort of internet passport, you suddenly become a, a legal entity on the internet. That's what it's moving into. When you say package, you mean like, uh, kind of like how satellite and cable TV Exactly operates. like that. A package would mean a certain collection of websites that in order to be able to access those websites, you'd have to buy that package. Do you know what they're going to do as well, right? Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter are yeah. going to be in three separate packages. Yeah. And they're going to be the three websites you probably signed up for in the first place. And now it's like, oh, okay, I'm going to have to go yeah. get three packages when really yeah. I only want these three websites. I don't want the whole three packages. Yeah, but, you know, and there's also the fact that, like, your bank manager will know that you look at bestiality porn because you, you sign up to the triple X package. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> it's all on record. Yeah. Eventually, it would go to the point where you'd have to, you wouldn't just be paying, I'm talking like five or ten years from now, the day of being able to walk into an internet cafe and just go online, look at a video, come out again. You wouldn't be able to do that. You'd have to log on with your unique user identity. And, you know, it, I find right, it... I find okay, it, I see what you mean. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking this is, a, this is a sort of backdoor control thing. Another factor, right, with the idea of your internet service provider might start packaging websites together is that most ISPs, it's not the only thing that they do. Take Sky, Sky Broadband. Yes. The main side of the Sky business is obviously satellite television. Yeah including produce their own content as well. Yeah. Without net neutrality, say, there might come a time where Sky go, okay, do you know what? We're going to block any content that wasn't made by Sky, possibly. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, like, that's a corporate rivalry. But what if, what if it gets to, like, um, they'll say, we won't, we won't host any people who say stuff that disagrees with our company policy. If you look <laughs> at the major websites, like a YouTube, they're heading in that direction where they're trying to curb how much content is like coming from the users, just like hobbyist amateur yes. content creators. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they want more professional. Well, you, now, they want networks. And well, like, now we have YouTube stars. That's the thing. And YouTube Red. Yeah, well, like someone who, someone who was recently kicked off the Arm and Celebrity program on TV. He was a oh, he yeah. was a YouTube celebrity, Jack Maynard or someone. Yeah, so uh, yeah, like I say, um, ISPs are obviously they've they've got their beaks dipped into a lot of different. What would you call it? Troughs. <laughs> pots yeah whatever because if you look at the satellite and cable tv market virgin have sky channels on their platform yeah so there's obviously like they're not that kind of competitive the steel nosed fuck you <laughs> if you want to access this content you've got to pay extra you know what I mean? like they're willing to work and cooperate with each other so I, I suspect it wouldn't get to that point where um, your internet service provider is like, we're not going to, we're going to block access to any of our competitors' content. Yeah. There is the worry, though, like you say, they, they might turn it into the satellite and cable TV subscription model. I mean, that's what everybody ultimately does not want. You want to just be able to have your, either your data cap, your unlimited yeah. data, and then just you can access whatever website you yeah. want, assuming but, it's not child you know, porn or whatever. Yeah. But like, you know, it's worth it's exploiting our current technological limitations to sort of put us in a stricture that will be completely unnecessary in about 10 years. Like you're still using terms like data caps. 
you know that that shouldn't be a thing in 10 years it should be there's you know the, the acceleration of computing is faster than any other type of technological acceleration like i say you will have unlimited data and instantaneous communication between machines uh, you know what it's dependent on though right well you have to pay for the in- infrastructure yeah yeah because that's well that's the point we reached maybe like five or six years ago when hd video started becoming the norm it's yeah. like oh my god do you know what these are hundred year old victorian copper wires they're not sufficient for the amount of data that's going like the throughput of data of the internet copper wire can't carry the same amount of data a fiber optic cable can but replacing those copper wires obviously pretty fucking expensive yeah and that's what that's like the only thing that's going against what you're saying about like old bandwidth yeah in the future won't matter yeah that's if we keep up the Mm -hmm. infrastructure with the amount of data that's going through the internet of course the amount of data grows every day i guess what's ultimately driving this is everyone wants to maximize their profits to the fullest before we hit that point where, oh my God, we're going to have to spend billions on infrastructure. But yeah, Obama passed a net neutrality law, but now Obama's gone. And now we have the madman in the White House, Donald Trump. Absolute madman. And he appointed a guy, Ajit Pai, to be the head of the FCC. So basically what Obama did, he made it so that in the eyes of the state, the internet is a public utility. But Ajit Pai, the new FCC chairman, but his position, right, is the classic Republican Party sort of line. The government is shit at regulating things. It stifles innovation. It makes companies unwilling to reinvest their profits back into their company. So he's but, saying, all right, get it, get it away from government a little bit. Yeah, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with that, actually, the more you talk about it. Why? You know, I hate to admit it, but I'm on the internet almost all day. Blanking. like. Yeah, and like it's it's a big big thing. It's a big big part of everyone's lives. And like your your banking's online, records about us are online, and you know you can trace someone's location online, and all sorts of things. But that what people forget is that the government is the people. It's meant to be anyway. And so you have the government sounds really bad, but then you also have businesses, and businesses can be like evil things. So that's what kind of Obama was doing, though. He was looking out for us. Yeah, I think it should be treated like a utility. And so would you say it's up to the government then to invest in the infrastructure? Yeah. We don't want a future of mega corporations running the world. Monopolies. We, you don't want, I'm sorry, but you don't want Mark Zuckerberg to wield more power than Donald Trump. However much you might like Zuckerberg compared to Trump, it's fundamentally important that a publicly elected official is responsible so we can kick for that out. shit. So we can change it if we have to. But he's going to run one he's day. Gonna run, so it'll become the same thing anyway. You're right. How often does that Rather happen than, with the government though? How often does that happen with the government where it's like they actually, they get voted out they they put in their manifesto we're, we're going to deal with this problem because that's what you want us to do then they get in government and they drop it yeah as long as you're confident democracy works which i am to go back to ajit ajit pai yeah he's he's making the classic argument that government the federal law i think it's called title two that makes the internet a public utility that was drawn up like a hundred years ago it was designed for telephone wires and things like that he's saying early 20th century legislation shouldn't really apply the speed with which that the internet is growing and in a way kind of changing yeah is very very rapid government response to rapid changes tends to be pretty slow so that's an argument for getting to clarify ajit pai doesn't want to completely remove any sort of government oversight he just wants minimalist government oversight which is your kind of bag right you're a libertarian-ish yes the technology will always keep ahead of the government 
like I said earlier, I think the, the real crux of this issue, the sort of driving force of the issue is that the infrastructure has to be paid for and nobody wants to pay for it. So, yeah. I mean, I think the strongest argument is like, uh, so for any, in the UK, BT, British Telecom, yeah, they own basically most of the telephone lines. Yeah. yeah. And so like really the onus is on them. Because it's not like they're not making money out of it. They are. But their their stance is, no, this, a combination of the state and all these websites and the internet service providers who make money off of our infrastructure, they should pay for it. Yeah. Who do you think the onus is on? The state, telecommunications companies, or the internet service provider, or Facebook? The state. That's us. That's taxpayers' money. Good. I pay tax for, like, baby incubators and to fill in potholes on my favourite roads. You know, tax doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing. I know traditionally we've always been told that we should distrust our governments. We should, but we should distrust these huge organisations even more who, who have these very sort of fluffy exteriors. Even when you talk about things like infrastructure, that is still a current technological constraint. And I honestly do think in, in a shorter period of time than people think, even the way we connect to the internet could 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 change drastically uh and the like way through our brains that's interesting maybe so yeah i mean i'd say the strongest argument is that yeah the telecommunications companies should pay to upgrade the infrastructure which like i say is going to need routine maintenance and upgrades mm-hmm. however a lot of websites are making shitloads of money off of the internet a lot of isps are making shitloads of money off of the internet i don't think it should be the taxpayers because it's like we already pay isps money as it is and there yeah. are websites as well that like I, we pay subscription fees to websites as well as isps we're already paying enough as it is i think it should be the combination of the three the uh, isps websites like facebook netflix the bigger ones and the telecommunications company they should all pull their money like a certain percentage of their profit should go back to be reinvested into the internet its infrastructure itself Mm -hmm. like codify that and that's but that's but but you know big businesses don't like governments intrusion (laughs) intrusion taking their dosh and telling them what to do Um, it's it's about striking a balance, choosing the better of two evils, really. Yeah, which today, is a, which is a movable goalpost, depending on the time, you know, and uh, Bill Gates' mood. They just want to maximise profits as much as humanly possible. That's all they really give a shit about. Not really, though, because people could accuse them of not only maximising profits, but it gets into the sort of shadow area of you know they're trying to encourage us to think a certain way, or you know they don't like Who's certain they? exactly. You know, there's that side of it as well. The type of information that's being presented now there might already be algorithms that google use where if you looking up a news story you'll get google's preferred news outlets popping up first yeah they curate and then like yeah, they do that yeah totally. like russia today will be like 10 pages down yeah. which might have had the it's more, more accurate story so that's something Maybe. as well now isn't it where you think uh, the company ethos suddenly becomes a political motivation that's an issue at google already yeah with their sexism thing that's why i want a bit of government intrusion because it's like you don't want parent company of google alphabet just having total control there's going to be the never-ending conflict of there's always going to be the schism it's it's better that the government be mostly in control of the internet versus it's better that private corporations be mostly in control of the internet and it's going to be like if you're left wing you're probably going to favor the state if you're right wing you're probably going to favor private corporations but i don't think it'll ever ever be completely solved so obviously Trump is a Republican president. The Republicans control both uh, the Senate and Congress. So there's a good chance, like the vote, the FCC are going to vote on this on December 14th. And that's why in the coming weeks on your favorite website, you're going to be seeing a lot about net neutrality. What's your favorite website? Uh, X Hamster. 
But yeah, I mean, I don't think there's going to be a lot of um, alarmism and what have you. But I think net neutrality kind of existed before the government codified it into law. Nobody really wants to destroy the idea of the open internet. They just want to compete. I think in the end it'll be. I think it'll be fine. I think it's something we're going to have a panic, a, a moral panic about every couple of years. No, I think I think there's going to be a few milestone events that the internet is going to cause that we can't quite picture yet. So it all comes down to whose hands is the internet best left in, and on that point, whose hands is Germany best left in? Is it all over? The dear Mutti. After 12 years as Europe's most powerful politician, Angela Merkel's political power appears to be waning after talks to form a coalition government with the Greens and the Free Democrats broke down. So what happens next? Merkel's Christian Democrats could approach their previous governing partners, the Social Democrats, but so far they have ruled out another grand coalition. Merkel said she would run again for Chancellor if there were new elections, but that could backfire. The far-right anti-migrant Alternative for Germany, or AFD party, gained almost 13% of the vote in September. They sense further gains. This is an unprecedented thing to happen in German politics. Not being able to form a government yeah. for this long. Yeah. And what is it? Just a couple of weeks after the election, she's gone from being the strongest politician in Europe to being on the edge. But Merkel's Merkel's pulled off some 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 great saves in the past yeah. as well. She survived worse. Yeah, like that that like she she timed her about face on her immigration policy, you know, perfectly. But she didn't really do just before everyone got too pissed off she didn't really do a u-turn she blamed the german people she said they weren't compassionate enough one of the big different you know just just culturally and politically they're, they're so different the germans compared to us like you only have to look at the the name of the political party that that merkel leads it's called the christian democrats now can you imagine a political party in this country that had a religion as part of its name in a few years, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but, okay, let's not. But yeah, not, now, not traditionally. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, not traditionally because you know it, it's sort of. I always think it's funny. It's like if if uh, the president said that he didn't believe in God, he'd be impeached in America. Yeah. the next day. Yeah, totally. After, but, like I said on the last episode, right after the life of Brian, it was impossible to take Christianity seriously in this country anymore. Mm. But then again, how often do you hear Angela Merkel bigging up Jesus? Never really. Yeah, is that right? So back in September, which was quite some time ago. Well, not really, but you know what I mean, like 21st century, like anything longer than a week's a long time. Yeah. So back in September, Germany held an election and dear Mutti, dear mother Angela Merkel, her Christian Democrat party, who are already in alliance with the CSU, her party did get the highest number of seats, meaning she is still Chancellor of Germany, but not enough seats to form a majority government on their own. So following the election, Angela Merkel, she had to negotiate with other parties to try and form a coalition government, which is par for the course under the European PR system. First past the post for the win. In the last election, Angela Merkel formed a coalition with the SDP, the Social Democrats. Their leader is Martin Schultz. 
and uh, apparently it would seem they had a bit of a bitter relationship because following what we would call a hung parliament in this year's elections, the SDP pretty much came out immediately and said, yeah, we're not interested in talking to Angela Merkel about forming another coalition government, which I thought was a bit odd. I think Martin Schultz was a little bit petty. I think he thought he was going to beat Angela Merkel when he didn't. He was like... Well, maybe he just anticipated what's happening now and uh, he thinks he's in with a chance. Like another election? Yeah. Angela Merkel had spent a long time negotiating with the Greens, the German Greens, and the Free Democratic Party, who are like classical liberals, very pro-business, but not entirely laissez-faire capitalists. So the FDP, the Free Democrat Party, they walked away from negotiations. But it's been reported that where the negotiations broke down was the Green Party wanted more immigration. They wanted to loosen uh, asylum seeker rights and things like that. And the FDP said no. They couldn't come to an agreement and the FDP were like, fuck this, this is going on forever and they just walked away. So, Tim, do you think this is the end for dear Mutti? No. I think Germans, they like playing it safe, don't they? That's what sort of got her this far. I think when they realise what's at stake. But then they see that the thing is that the last German elections were particularly prominent because the uh, AF, AFD party, they, they sort of stormed in and got got a few votes which, they're the third biggest party now which um you know shocked a lot of people but didn't surprise many people Bre- observing from abroad um many brexiteers well let's talk afd they're ru- they're routinely described as far right and you you have contention with that do you i was listening to someone on the radio the other day who was like criticizing them they were saying like oh you know this uh, afd party all their granddads were nazis and i was thinking like <laughs> well, you know we're talking Germans here. <laughs> pretty hard pressed to, to find out he wasn't a little bit involved. Yeah, Merkel herself was in Hitler Youth, but obviously it doesn't necessarily mean she was no, pro-Hitler. Or no, exactly. But G- Germany does have this shadow hanging over it, where if it goes even slightly to the right, you know, it's sort of everyone suddenly is terrified of yeah. jackboots. Starts looking at each other nervously, like, yeah. oh God, are we doing this again? Yeah. So when these uh, negotiations fell apart, the reaction from the British press, particularly the um, pro-Brexit press, was like almost jubilation. They were like gleeful about it, like, ha-ha, that kind of schadenfreude. Especially Andrew Neil. Mm. Andrew Neil's on Twitter straight away going like, this is catastrophe for Angela Merkel. German politics is in more chaos than British politics right now. And it's like, why are you serious? Well, fairly or unfairly, many people see Merkel as the de facto leader of the EU, mm. even though it's meant to be a coalition of, of people. She she does wield an inordinate amount of, of influence and power. In essence, all everyone has sort of unfairly blamed all the bad aspects of the EU on her, as if she was personally responsible for it. Yeah, like she's a dictator. Yeah, which she isn't, which is very easy target. And she's she's been in office, like, she's been Chancellor of Germany for 12 years now as well. And it's like every politician, their time comes for them. Nobody lasts forever. She's, so, she's a very sort of level, calm politician. Yeah. That, that is why she was so successful for so long, because that's what's appealed to Germans. They, they, because of this sort of psychic memory they have of jackboots, like, they don't, they don't like rocking the boat. They're like... But it's a safe pair of hands, is yeah. what she's represented for the best part of a decade, yeah. right? But Europe's suddenly become a very unsafe place politically rising know, populism tectonic shifts in populations and ethnicities and it's, mm. it's it's all sort of brewing underneath her do you think german politics is at 
actually in chaos right now, more so than Britain's. Do you agree with Andrew Neil? I'd say European politics in, in general. I always say this fucking every time I ever speak to you, but Brexit shouldn't have happened. This cascade effect has, has come from this fracturing. And one of those fractures has just whoosh, just gone straight through the, the German political establishment. And they can't seem to cooperate anymore because they, they sense this this fracturing of the union, which I think is like a sort of Jenga tower that, that Britain pulled the block out of. That and I think because the AFD are now third largest party, they are, that is genuinely concerning to yeah. the German establishment, political establishment. Yeah. And it doesn't matter whatever your political leanings. But worse than Brexit? More chaotic than Brexit Britain? Well, like, let's be honest, right? Angela Merkel's not as much of a farcical joke than yeah. Theresa May is right now. Well, I don't see I don't see our current politics as chaotic. I see it more as just... In just, free fall. <laughs> just like a sort of mud torrent. You know, it's turpid. Turpid is the mm, word yeah. on politics. There's, there's no energy to it. German politics, definitely. There's, there's, you know, the AFD. Like, talking about the AFD, no matter what your political views and persuasion on the situation on immigration... Are they really far right? But they're a direct result of it aren't they? Just like the growth of UKIP was a direct result of the immigration coming into this country. It's like... I'd say it's loss of identity. Cultural identity was waning and almost in the eyes of the public, it was sort of like the political establishment wanted to erase it. Yeah, but like when when people do feel under threat or some fear or something they will eventually organise and try and do something about it. You have to, you have to admit the fact that they are a direct result of, of really Merkel's policies. Um, so really, um, she's sort of, this is like the sort of first stumble from the strike of, of the wound that was, that was, that's been caused by, by Brexit. A bit of Brexit spirit is involved on the continent at the moment. The wild card, Germans probably watched Trump getting in and thought, well, what the hell's about that? Maybe we can get a bit of that. Maybe we can have some and, excitement. Um, <laughs> and just Marine Le Pen in France, she came close. Yeah. It, you can't deny there's been a, sh- a shift or at least... An, an experiment has been taken by members of the public, you know, a chance even. It's bitch slapping the establishment. 100%, 100%. Angela Merkel's choices right now. So, I mean, like early goings, she ruled out she didn't want to have another election. And uh, she was saying, oh, I don't want another election because like we, ju- we just consulted the German public and it wouldn't be right to consult them so quickly again, blah, blah, blah. I think really she's concerned the AFD, who are described as far right, I don't know, that's a term that's thrown around a little too loosely. I mean, they're populist, they're nationalist. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they're far right entirely, but I think the reason she's ruled out an election is because she doesn't want them gaining any more seats. Like you say, this sort of fuck you politics is, is a good word for it. Like you say, this reaction people have had against what they perceive to be the establishment. They're not always taking, well, they're never actually taking the best choices, but they're taking the only alternative they can get. I would liken it to... um. Farage is a bit of a piece of shit. As much as we jokingly kind of praise him and call him Lord Farage and OBE, whatever, maybe it needed somebody a bit nasty Mm. to get the fact that the British public weren't consulted on mass immigration and to get that like on the agenda so that we could force the establishment to address it. Yeah, it's like I say, when when you have limited choice available, you can't always take the best choice. You you have to take the only choice. So she's ruled out calling another election uh, so an alternative to that if she can't form a coalition government is to just just do a minority government with just the cdu slash csu the problem there though is there's a similar parallel there 
with uh, Theresa May, where it's just a major struggle to actually try and get any legislation through without the opposition blocking it. So, I mean, that's not really desirable. Calling another election is not really desirable because of the threat from the AFD. What does Merkel do? What would you do, Tim? If I was in Merkel's shoes, I'd take a leaf out of Donald Trump's book. Start attacking the media. <laughs> yeah, just, 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 just get a little bit more controversial. Talk shit about Kim Jong-un. And aggressive, because I think that's, that's what people want now. Because she was, yeah, she was never the strong woman of Europe. No, she, she was, was the safe pair of hands, like the hands. dear Mutti. The non-threatening German. So I said, like, immediately following the election, the SDP, the Social Democrats, led by Martin Schultz, they ruled out forming a coalition with Merkel's CDU again. However, thanks to the threat of uh, potentially another new election where the AFD might gain even more seats... They're now changing tact. They're kind of saying, actually, since these other negotiations have failed, like, if Merkel wants to talk to us, okay, we'll talk. Do you think, though, the SDP, like, part of their condition for forming a coalition with the CDU would be asking Angela Merkel to step down? A la, um, do you remember when uh, in the hung parliament here in the UK in 2010, there was almost going to be a deal between Labour and the Lib Dems, but one of the conditions from the Lib Dems was Gordon Brown had to step down, he had to mm. go away? Do you think the SDP would do that? What do you think that's, that's the offer they're going to make? I think they might. It depends how much they think Merkel needs them. How much she wants it at the end of the day. You know, all these people who are world leaders, they're world leaders because they, they want it bad. They wanted to be world leaders. It takes a lot of effort <laughs> to get there. And uh, despite her sort of placid calm demeanor, you know, you have to think. Egomaniac does, for sure. Yeah. D- does she like being the leader? Does she still want to be the leader? She's, she's adamant she wants to serve her fourth term and then. Yeah. Because right. I promised the electorate. But the thing about Martin Schultz is I think he's desperate to be liked by the German public. And I think he's kind of bitter about the fact that Angela Merkel's still more popular than he is. Yeah. Like it came out well, once these um, these backroom deals and this negotiation where she was trying to form a coalition government, once it failed, the German public didn't come out and say, oh yeah, that was Angela Merkel's fault. They blamed the Greens and the FDP saying it was their fault. So Merkel's still... I don't know, do you feel like there's a, maybe a bit of a dependency? Well, I was thinking it's interesting. Like she's she's been whatever chancellor for 12 years. Yeah. 12 years is, is a long time. If you think in Germany's history, how long ago did the Berlin Wall fall down? 30 years ago. So they, have, they have, probably haven't had that many leaders. They haven't, no. They haven't had that many leaders since the Berlin Wall fell down. And especially she's the first female leader as well. So I think there is a sort of psychological, not dependency, but there is a certain totemic thing to her. She's one of the modern... Germany, you know, like this she, undivided country that was divided, you know, for like 50 years. And before she that, came in, she came in at a time where a lot of kind of change was going on in European politics. And she's outlasted all of her contemporaries who got elected around the same time as her. She's got a staying power to her, definitely for sure. So maybe, you know, her, her losing her job, it's it's a far, far, far bigger deal in terms of where Germany's going compared to, say, mm. Theresa May losing her job. Eurosceptics in this country make a big deal about Merkel's really pro-Euro-federalism. She's not. Not nearly as much as uh, Emmanuel Macron or Juncker or Guy Verhofstadt. Not nearly as much as them. And she's not that liberal either, by the way, guys. And she's not really that feminist either. There's a lot of people that try and lay claim. Because she's popular, a lot of people try and claim Angela Merkel. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what Merkel does from here. Where she goes from here and the whole direction the country takes. Like minority government, maybe? It's, it's a big thing. Problem with minority government, she wouldn't get anything done. And I think she's got ideas of what she wants to do before she leaves politics. And of course, from a 
looking out from over the channel from a, from a, a, a Brexit point of view, a, a sort of weakened German government, it'd be a very useful thing in the negotiations, which hopefully should be finished by the time they do that, <laughs> which is not going to happen. Well, Jacob Rees-Mogg came out and said that based on the idea that Angela Merkel is like de facto leader of the EU, that a weakened German state in terms of their political balance would somehow benefit Britain in the Brexit talks. Yeah. I don't think it makes the slightest bit of difference. I mean, first of all, right, let's say Angela Merkel goes, all right, fuck it, we'll consult the German public again, we'll have another election. That's not going to happen until, what, middle of next year? How long have we got left to uh, negotiate yeah. a trade deal? Can we really afford to sit and just wait and go like, all right, well, let's just, let's just see how these German elections go. Yeah, but I've got a feeling that if she leaves it that long, people like the AFD, they could gain more traction because they've got more time to say like, oh, look how bad things are. Look how what's happened. Because you know, like things are gradually more, getting worse. So like one more terrorist, like another terrorist attack. Oh, so, yeah. like, there'll, there'll, be, there'll be at least another two or three within the next <laughs> six months. Sorry, it's mathematical probability. <laughs> probably right, but it's it's a horrible thought. But the, I think the number one reason why it doesn't make a difference who's leading Germany, who's leading France when it comes to Brexit, the EU27 have already set out their position months ago. And they were, quite, they were way more transparent about it than the Tories were with the, the UK position. Yep. They've already agreed it. They've already signed it, ratified it. And it's not like the German Chancellor can come along and go, oh, hi, other EU26. That document that we agreed, that's like a legally binding document, we're going to rip that up and just change it unilaterally. But somebody looked it up. But Brexit did not come up once during the German election. Like It wasn't in any of the German party's manifesto. In fact, I think the only time Angela Merkel even spoke about Brexit is when a British journalist asked her directly. Mm. Otherwise, she just didn't, she didn't give a fuck. And no one in, I don't think anybody in Germany gives a shit, really. Unless you're a car manufacturer, you probably don't care. This is like something I think we get wrong with Brexit. We think it's like a, a political issue, like a party political issue, and that it makes a difference whether it's the Tories in government or Labour, or if it's Merkel, CDU in government, or the AFD. It doesn't make the slightest bit of difference. Brexit is more of a legal issue. We, we're taking a lot of legal treaties, and we're putting them into this murky grey area where we're not really sure what the fuck's going to happen now. It all comes down to trade at the end of the day, isn't it? It's just a transactional thing. If she does step down, Angela Merkel, would you rather have Martin Schultz? Would you rather have... I don't even know who the leader of the AFD even is, or the Greens, or the FDP. Like, who other than Merkel? Well, to be honest with you, I don't warm to Schultz very much, because I've seen him in the EU Parliament. Physically grotesque, sort of fat, bald man. Yeah, but... Um, with stubble. No, I didn't get a good, good impression from him when I've seen him speak, but... Yeah, again, it, because he's a super Europhile, so that's that's always going to turn me off. Yeah, and as a Brexiteer, do we really want... It, let's say hypothetically it does make a difference who the Chancellor is. Do we want someone who is way more pro-Euro-federalism than Angela Merkel was? So this could end up being a bad thing for, for Brexit. <laughs> you know? I think I think today we're, we're talking a lot about choosing the lesser of two evils, aren't we? It's like we were talking about governments and corporations. We're talking about a Europhile and a hyper-Europhile. <laughs> That's what I mean. She's Europhile, definitely. But I don't know if I'd say she's Eurofederalist. Let's say hypothetically this is the end for Angela Merkel. I don't think it really is, but let's say hypothetically. Will you miss her? I'd, I'd miss her. Yeah, I'd miss those beige trouser suits. No, what, what I'd miss most about her is, is her obsession with her hands. She has all these different hand poses. She does. She can't just... Normally the Mr. Burns thing, right? Yeah. She has this the like, fingertips touched together. Like power, yeah. power pyramid to sort of focus her chi. <laughs> that's the Illuminati sign. Oh, that's the logo. Maybe she was doing some like sort of chi focusing. I think she's one of 
you know, to give credit where credit's due, I think she's one of the brighter politicians oh, in Europe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because she's quiet and you can tell she's she's very calculating yeah. and measured. She's very yeah. measured in the way she speaks. I can never remember her outwardly like going, oh, you Brits are so fucking stupid, you know. No, she's too diplomatic for no. that. Yeah, she's, that's, that's the thing. She's a great diplomat. I mean, that's the thing. Prior to the migrant crisis, everybody loved Angela Merkel. Yeah. She was massively, she still is massively popular, to be fair. Do you remember the video? A member of her party was on the stage and he's waving the German flag just where won. most of them was it's... waving EU flag. Do you think she did that because she's massively Euro-federalist? No, it's because she was terrified of being seen as a nationalist. I agree, yeah. Nothing to do with her being more loyal to the Song of Europa. But yeah, does Britain really want to get rid of a German chancellor who's not really Euro-federalist and take the risk of having Martin Schultz? Does Britain really want that? Speaking of what Britain really wants, which she really, really wants. What it really, 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 really wants. It's time to talk housing crisis with Philip Hammond's budget. The dream of home ownership will become a reality in this country once again. But I also want to take action today to help young people who are saving to own a home. I've received representations for a temporary stamp duty holiday to first-time buyers, but this would only help those who are ready to purchase now. So with effect from today, for all first-time buyer purchases up to £300,000, I am abolishing stamp duty altogether. Tories getting excited. Haven't heard that in a while. I was doing maths. I normally, you know, left very cold by budgets. But I was just doing some calculations <laughs> on... Um, you won't have to pay any stamp duty up to 300000 For first-time buyers, yeah. yeah. So I was thinking, like, to get that 17%, I'd need to save up about £51,000 to get a mortgage for a £300,000 house. On a national average salary, that, how many fucking years is that? <laughs> But what you heard there was a sort of headline grabber from UK Chancellor of the Exchequer, Philip Hammond. I think he wants to be Prime Minister pretty badly after lame duck Theresa May eventually goes, which I suspect will be early next year. So you heard him announce there, for first-time home buyers, up to £300,000, they will pay absolutely no stamp duty. Now, Tim, as someone, considering we've both never bought a home... no. What is stamp duty? Basically, it's it's a tax. Yeah. It's a tax. You have to pay a percentage of the value of the property you buy just so the government can have more money. Yeah, I think it's any time you buy any sort of residential property, you have yeah, to pay. Yeah, yeah. You have to pay someone to put a stamp on the page. And you think that would be quite cheap, you know, a bit of rubber and a bit of ink. But <laughs> I don't know, it, it could cost you thousands. That. Government expenditure. Yeah. yeah. Government waste. <laughs> so I, I said it was headline grabber. There were two big stories coming out of uh, what was dubbed the Brexit budget. One was this stamp duty, removal of stamp duty for first-time home buyers. The other big story is the OBR, the Office for Budget Responsibility. What they do is they, uh, anytime a chancellor is about to announce a budget, they take a look at it first, do their analysis, and then they come out with economic growth forecasts for the UK for like the next four or five years. Which are really accurate. True. 
And so the OBR's figures back in March were saying for 2017, the UK growth forecast would be 2%. In this new November budget, the revised OBR figure is down from 2% growth to 1.5%. And not only that, but for the first time ever, the OBR is predicting less than 2% economic growth for more than three years running. Pretty dire, pretty gloomy. But this stamp duty, let's talk the stamp duty one first. Supposedly, according to the OBR, Philip Hammond's removal of stamp duty for first-time buyers will save, on average, £1,700, which, in the grand scheme of things, like, that's not no. It's not really much money, is it? You it's, think about it. It's like a month's wages. Would you call this gesture politics? I think it's undeniable that there's a housing crisis in this country. I'd go further than that and say there's a, a housing time bomb that's going to explode in the next year or two. And Oh, that soon? Well, that's in terms of maybe a property price collapse in the, the market. Now, is it gesture politics? It, it is It is gesture politics, but it, it, is, but it was a gesture that needed to be made. But like I say, there is a housing time bomb ticking in this country you know the population is 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 growing hugely we're not building enough new houses the houses that are there are completely unaffordable for the average worker to and largely empty and yeah it's, where there is precious things will crack eventually so the government it, it needs to do more it's just long just coming. over one and a half thousand pounds in the grand scheme of things that's not going to be much to, to anyone over the space of a year is it I mean, yeah. What will um, three hundred thousand get you? He made he made a provision for London that um, you'd still even if up to five hundred grand, you the first three hundred grand you still pay no stamp duty on. So it's like, yeah, okay, you're still saving a little bit of money. But the uh, the OBR Mm. Office of Budget Responsibility they've actually calculated given how much house prices go up, this cut on stamp duty is actually not in the long run. You're not really going to save any money on it. Like house prices are going to go up in effect that it will offset any savings. Yeah. So I think, yeah, it is. It's really gesture politics. It is like a gesture. Said, it is a gesture. Like if, if he did want to do something now, the thing he didn't mention at all was foreign buyers. Mm. Now, if in the budget they'd suddenly made it a lot more expensive for these sort of foreign companies to come in and buy up properties wholesale, then that would have been disastrous for the house building companies and they wouldn't be able to build all these new houses that are needed. One thing he did introduce yeah. as a minor way of combating what you're talking about, uh, councils now, they can issue double council tax on empty homes. So if a, yeah. a foreign citizen buys a property and doesn't live in it, the yeah. council can charge them twice on council tax yeah as a minor disincentive oh yeah but if you own like a hundred properties that can become a big disincentive and but the thing is we shouldn't have this whole foreign investors as boogeyman thing like i say buying up a lot of uk property they're buying up a lot of uk property but you see the actual house builders the people that we need to build the properties that everyone can live in they need to be given more incentives. They've got to make a profit. Yeah, they've got and to make low... a profit, but they can't be sort of penalised because that will ultimately limit their ability to, to build the affordable houses. Because let's contextualise. The Tories are gravely concerned. I mean, this is what I get from reading pro-Tory, Tory-friendly press, is that the Tories have figured out, okay, we're going to lose votes to Labour due to the fact that the proportion of people who own property has rapidly declined over the last 10, 15 years. There's way more renters. People will only vote Tory if they own property. If you don't own anything, you're unlikely to vote Tory. You'll vote Labour instead. And obviously Jeremy Corbyn scared the shit out of the Tories. 
And so now we're getting these gestures, but you're right. I think what you're getting at is right. The Tories aren't building enough. The government, successive governments have not built enough houses in, in this country right. for fucking years. And it's negligent because those yeah. governments have been directly responsible for the population explosion. They thought of the millions of immigrants who were going to come, they would leave. Like net migration would be close to zero. That every like year, 100,000 come, come in, but it's okay because uh, every year 100,000 leave. Why would they want to leave though? Why would they want to leave? It turned out that over half the people that arrived didn't go back, which is what led to the rise of and of course, And of course, no one has children, do they? Exactly. They, yeah. they were all sort of celibate, <laughs> all these immigrants. I mean, it's not a bad thing that the notion that people coming from outside of Britain come to Britain and go, oh, well, actually, this is actually quite a good country. Yeah. I want to live here. Like, that's not necessarily a bad thing, I guess. No, it's not. If I've got no problem with it, but build the fucking infrastructure. Do it, do it right. Because Hammond, Philip Hammond, he attempted to address this. He's earmarked £44 billion, I think £15 billion of which is the new pledge, to trying to hit a target of building 300,000 new homes every single year. We've heard this a lot from uh, successive governments. We've heard, oh yeah, we're going to build 200,000 a year, 300,000 a year, and it never happens. Yeah. How, how many electricians are there in the country? I don't know. And how many of them will like work a full week? For free. Come on, physically, it's completely unrealistic. Oh, and that 44 billion, that's spread over five years. So if you want to do a quick calculation, 8.8 .8 billion per year, which in the grand, like in terms of a country budget, 8.8 .8 billion is nothing. Well, it's not nothing, but it's not that big. It's not that big. It's going to cost a lot more than that. Actually, we're talking out of our asses. I don't know. I don't know. How, much, how much does the NHS cost a year? How many <sighs> billions? That, that goes up every single year. Yeah, but how much did it cost last year in billions? 8.8 .8 well, billion? Do you remember a couple of years ago they were saying, oh yeah, we asked for 4 billion over the next five years, something like that. Yeah. And then two years into that five years, they were like, oh, by the way, we need another 8 billion. The truth is, they don't know. Nobody knows. <laughs> they just like just throw money at the problem. But to keep this on how because we'll come to the NHS in a sec. So, I mean, the housing crisis, it really needed something more drastic than this. One more than 44 billion over five years, probably double that, to, just to be safe. And um, I'm kind of disappointed they didn't free up. Like in the UK, we have this thing called green belt sites, i.e. it's green land that you can't build anything on. Untouched since the time of Jesus. Yeah, other than maybe like a railway line, <laughs> there's nothing really you can build on it. I would like for him to go, actually, you know, where those railway lines are? Like maybe a couple of miles within those railway lines, you can build some houses. The Tories, I think their um, assessment is right, that people who don't own property are not going to vote Tory. It definitely needed something more than this, though. Like, what's a drastic thing we could do to actually stop building more fucking houses? Just 3D print them? Well, you could 3D print them already, but it's it's about the, the planning laws and just, just the laws and legislation. Like, I've, I've asked people before, like, can I live in a shipping container? <laughs> <laughs> one know? day my prediction one day is we're all going to be living in shipping containers yeah but like in the days of universal basic income they built they built a building out of shipping containers in camden town in north london and they needed to get like special permission and it's not something you can do easily um but you know but if they change the law and just say yeah just fucking drill in a few windows put a padlock on and you can call it a house Talking about earmarked money and spending, Hammond attempted to allay Remainer fears about the lack of preparations for a, a no-deal Brexit, and he's promised an allocation of £3 billion to uh, funding things like setting up like regulatory bodies, including things like border agencies and... 
paying lawyers just to like change one word on 5,000 documents. The true winners of Brexit are going to be trade lawyers, thousands of pounds per hour. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He set aside three billion for a no deal scenario. I think it's going to cost a lot more than three billion to uh, get us ready for us crashing out of the EU. It's going to be more like 10, I reckon. That's if we have to, if we go down the route of no deal, we just have to give them no money. Legally, we're not obliged to give them any money. No, they can't force us to do it legally. No. The EU did a very petty thing this week and they, they oh. stopped us from being the European culture of capital, blah, blah, which is it's all a joke because it makes sense, though. It's, it, it's such an empty. Th- I don't give a fuck about that. If we were if we said to them, listen, we'll move into the EEA. If we did that, for example, they wouldn't have disqualified us. It's the rules. Do you think it's enough? Like the money he's put aside for housing, the 44 billion, the 3 billion on top of the 40, 45, maybe might even go up to 50, 55 billion European exit bill, EU exit bill. Is it enough? I just, I just think it would be a global tragedy if, if the EU did hammer us for 50 billion pounds, because that would, that would crush us as a nation. I can't say that's not going to happen because that reflects so badly on them. I don't think the bill's going to be that high. Do you have like um, a psychological cap? You know, when it comes to consumer spending, there's this idea of everyone has a price that they won't pay over. And do you have one in terms of how much Brexit is going to cost? Like, bar, forget exit bill. Like, if it came to like 20 billion. But for, for me, it's, it's never a sort of psychological or ego driven thing. For me, it's, it's, it's fundamental maths. And I, I'd like to know the figure at which, I, what would break our country, which could crack it. And it could actually... We, like crash our economy kind of Yeah, because, you know, like a couple of months ago, you know, it was last month, but they said that some government body had sort of overestimated our productivity levels for the last five years or something. The OBR did, yeah. Yeah, so like they're just, they'd fucked up basically and realised that we hadn't been as busy as we thought we'd been. We hadn't made as I much cash. We like, were half a billion poorer than we thought we were, yeah. something like that. So it's like Pretty economies money. can be a lot more precarious than they look. I'd, I'd want to know, I'd, I'd like them to just be honest with the facts and figures. Because we mentioned at the start, the OBR, they revised their figures downwards in terms of uh, projected UK economic growth, right? Back in October, the OBR came out and said, oh, look, in our March figures, we overestimated productivity levels. It's possible. It's possible that they're now in these revised November figures. Maybe they've underestimated productivity so maybe the real figure is in between their March prediction and their November prediction. Yeah. But it's still bad. But, you know, facts and figures. Who who famously... I think Homer Simpson famously said, you know, 77.5% of all statistics are made up on the spot. You know, <laughs> there's all these different facts you can take. Like another interesting fact that I saw was the, the amount of um, EU workers in the UK actually increased year on year. You mentioned last week. Yeah, yeah, compared to before Brexit. That means they're not leaving in droves. I know, like I said last week, e- the applications from the EU for NHS nursing has gone down drastically. Let's it's- make it easier for other countries to get jobs in the NHS, like well, the com- our Commonwealth friends. This is what sick fucks we are, right? Nigeria will invest tons of their taxpayers' money into training up nurses. <laughs> and then once they're fully trained, we come along and poach them. Yeah. We're, we're cunts. <laughs> Speaking of NHS, Philip Hammond, he's pledged an additional £2.8 billion in spending for patient services, um, to which the general reaction has been, that's not nearly enough. 
But that's a bit of a common story when it comes to the NHS. Everybody likes the NHS in principle. No one wants the American system of where um, I get an illness and now I'm bankrupt. But at the same time, we're at the point where we can no longer deny that the NHS, it's a public spending black hole. And like New Labour, if you look at the New Labour figures, it's just they just kept throwing more and more money at it until it eventually got better. The Tories are trying to reduce the country's debt. They're trying to get deficit spending down, so they don't want to do that. The problem with the NHS, and like Private Eye kind of uh, went through this, every two to three years, the NHS bosses, leaders, what have you, they will come out and say, oh yeah, that spending that we asked for two years ago, that's not nearly enough. I don't know. I don't know how long that can keep going until eventually we just get NHS privatisation, death by a thousand cuts kind of style. You know, we've brought it on ourselves by, you know, the NHS is too is too soft. You know, if they cut out the health tourism, they'd mm. save a fortune. That is a real thing, by the way, the health tourism. It's a massive thing. People will come here to get operations. Like, it does happen. Have kids, you name it. It's not some far-right conspiracy. No, no, no. And um, middle management, you know, being paid tens of thousands of pounds. Oh, the consultants setting their own salaries. Like, what a fucking ridiculous idea <laughs> that was. Keeping with the NHS, nurse pay. Now, as of, like all public sector workers have had a pay freeze for several years now. There's been a real emphasis focused on nurses for the last two, three years. Philip Hammond has pledged that he will give NHS nurses a pay rise, but he hasn't committed to an actual figure he wants to hash it out with, I don't even know who the nursing union is. I'm sure there is one. The knock-on effect of that, though, is is if you can get yourself to a place where you're like, oh, yeah, nurses deserve more money. How can you deny it to fire services, to police? How can you give it to the nurses, but then not everybody else, every other public sector worker? And um, another massive sector that didn't get, that didn't get any help or mention in the budget um, was the military, the armed forces. I saw... Uh, yeah, it wasn't mentioned. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. But I saw um, Johnny Mercer MP. He's like an ex-soldier. But he said there's actually going to be like, they're on the brink of like a sort of, not a backbench rebellion, but like... A the, mutiny? Uh, yeah, like a sort of military, not military coup. <laughs> but there's going to be like serious ructions going on between the Ministry of Defence and the Army, <laughs> Navy yeah. and Air Force. It's become a case of them not actually being able to defend the country and do their job to defend the country. That yeah. is actually in jeopardy now through underinvestment. Yeah, I think government. it was you who told me if Russia invaded... Oh, yeah. What, three, three, four days they conquer I us? I didn't tell you that, but... I um, thought it, yeah, I thought it was you. No, I, I, fucking Germany could probably do us. Now, in regards... I'm kind of getting pissed off with this one. The way the Tories keep conflating national minimum wage with the idea of a national living wage. So basically, Philip Hammond has raised the national minimum wage from about £7.20 to £7.83 per hour. The Tories, like I said, they keep calling it a national living wage. I believe, if I'm not wrong, the national living wage is calculated to be closer to £10, like £10 something. Kind of getting a bit annoyed with the way the Tories keep mis-selling this one. I think it's ten fifty. That's the number I heard. For you to live comfortably and to not be below the poverty line. Like, yeah. guaranteed you're not below poverty line. Yeah. Again, it's like, it's another nice gesture, but it's not enough. There's a huge rapidly developing gulf between the rich and the poor in this country and a rapidly shrinking middle class it's, it's becoming just like for the first time uh, in like 40 years or something yeah, but yeah. It's, it's becoming to be like a huge morass of the poor and a very small sliver of the rich like i say then the whole the whole issue of like home ownership which ultimately represents self-determination and the ability to look after yourself in old age you need assets when yeah, you're old yeah you know the thing is it's like they say capitalism is sort of 
dead for a lot of very young people now because they they, they, they have no capital. Forget about owning a house. None of them will even own a car. Mm. And that leads to stuff like Bastille like, Day. Um, it's not good. It's not good for society. Don't most young people do car leasing now rather than outright buying? Yeah. It's, it's, I think that's like they've crossed some threshold now. I mean, when it comes to productivity, something weird is going on. We work far longer hours and we have fewer public holidays than the French do. And yet somehow we're less productive than they are. I mean, what does that suggest? Productive is just like, what, what, is, what is that? Is that manufacturing? Is it just how much like, money's being moved around? I guess it's the idea of getting more for less. We're basically, we're kind of in a stasis where we're working harder and harder. Like the old cliche, you're running twice as fast just to stay in the same place. That's kind of like where Britain is at in terms of the figures at the very least. That's where it seems like we're at. I mean, you could kind of rationalize, oh, well, in, in America, they work longer. So that's why they're more productive. But yeah, but in France, they don't. And they're more productive. I kind of hate myself for saying this, but like if we decide that productivity, raising productivity levels is like of utmost importance, you and I are out of a job. Automation is going to replace us. Yeah, yeah. Like that's the direction it's going to go in. You'll get some AI that will spend five minutes listening to every podcast that's ever been recorded on the internet. And then it will just duplicate a slightly better thing with artificial voices and like you won't even you know everything will be virtual and artificial yeah no one knows this but tim is actually a laptop running in a bangkok hotel (laughs) (laughs) it's a very humid hotel that's why i'm coughing no the other thing but that's the other thing hammond did announce in the budget he did announce some extra investment in tech yeah start tech startups and things like that yeah so like obviously we nanotechnology again a nice gesture, a necessary gesture, but he could still do more. Like I say, we should try and become world leaders in that. We're going to need, we need to specialise in something. If we're going to be out of Europe, we need to become like the the world's dealer for a particular sort of thing. Like we did, we were in the past with opium or <laughs> railways. Do you, you know, remember technology? Um, we need, we need to get on the get onto this, and the government could do more. Do you remember shortly after the Brexit vote? Mm-hmm. And I was kind of, I was a little bit heartbroken by this. Do you know ARM, ARM? They're a British microchip producer, but they specialize in microchips that are low power consumption. So you can put them in handheld devices. Okay. But at one point, ARM were the world leaders on this. Mm-hmm. Shortly after Brexit, a Japanese company bought them. I think like, they were if, the market. if you take into consideration, like due diligence takes a long time. Uh-huh. This Japanese company obviously were aiming to buy arm prior to the brexit vote but i do think yeah they looked at the the drop in the value of the pound and like listen we're gonna buy this anyway let's buy it now when it's gonna be cheaper yeah we need to reverse that (laughs) do you know what i mean like we need more arms well we need more like let me rephrase that we need more company like arm Mm. but there's but there is a lot of um intellect and talent in this country and locked into this country like there was a great report i saw that it was actually a eu that released this report that famously stated that the the eu has 10 of the top 50 universities in the world and funnily enough though when you actually fact check it nine of those universities are in the uk well that's actually quite shocking and one of the the only the only other one was a french one that came in at number 49 (laughs) out of the 50 that's the truth we haven't got nine good universities in this country we've got we've got about four got oxford and cambridge yeah top two obviously by some margin some scott there's probably one good one in scotland i don't know who goes to university i don't care like i say only stupid people go to university like people what people don't understand anymore is like if this country was brought to its knees 
our productivity levels would shoot up because we'd all be in like factories like making iPhones and stuff. Feed yourself. I don't know. But desperate times. Desperate times. That's what I say, isn't it? It's like you, we've survived worse, I reckon. Someone I was talking to today, they, they were telling me about a man who who drinks a, a, like a couple of micrograms of snake venom every day. Yeah. So poison. Yeah, but such a small amount. It's actually good for him. He like looks 20 years younger or something. You, we, I think it might do us good to bump along the bottom for a while, you know. <laughs> Those bumps might toughen us up, make us a bit I more so. entrepreneurial, yeah. But also, from my perspective, if the housing market collapses and no one can sell their house, it will suit me because I might finally be able to afford one. It's never, it's never going to collapse. Because that, that's what happened in 2008. There should have been a housing market not maybe not collapse but a severe downturn where house prices should have come down quite significantly they didn't they yeah, dipped but, a little bit and then they went straight back up but everyone forgets about that crisis that that wasn't really allowed to happen because the banks weren't allowed to fail because it would have been global economic catastrophe <laughs> yeah but no, not a nice edge man yeah it's, it's 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 a finely balanced thing uk productivity we're gonna have to get our thinking caps on on that one and uh, yep. readdress that we're gonna that. have to invent something and then build lots of them and sell lots of them something to do with drones that's my tip if you're listening philip hammond drones yeah more on making cheaper making more power drones that drop houses <laughs> ladies and gentlemen Thank you for listening to us prattle on about topics we have no goddamn right to be talking about. There's certainly no expertise in. My thanks to Tim for joining me today. Thank you. Just to let you know, we are actually now on iTunes. That happened way quicker than I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to take two, three weeks, but we're probably like ranked <laughs> 60,000. You can help us out with the rankings if you uh, subscribe, if you're an iTunes user. All you got to do is search Ill-Informed Insight on the iTunes store. Just click subscribe. And if you're willing to do that, perhaps you're willing to give us a five-star rating. Five stars, please. Nothing less than five stars. If you are not an iTunes user, you can, of course, just follow us on SoundCloud. And that way you'll always be able to keep up to date with your ill-informed insight. And if you listen to what we tell you, you'll be just as stupid as us. (laughs) You can be as ill-informed as we are. (laughs) Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me.